Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. First, first announcement is um, that uh, we've been praying for uh, Marguerite. I can't even pronounce her name. Uh, Jim's uh, translator uses over there primarily. And she has a severe heart arrhythmia. And so we need to continue to pray that they'll get everything uh, everything stabilized with that. And then uh, Alan's not here. He knew there was a second announcement. Oh, I know what it was. Apparently last last week, right, apparently last week when we, uh, the week before, when we did not have class because due to weather, that not everybody got the word on that. So some people, and I'm primarily addressing the group that's usually here on Tuesday night, uh, if your name, if you were one of those people who didn't get notified and you showed up, then um, uh, you need to make sure your name, contact information is uh, on that list and updated. And there's a sign-up list out here, and there may be one in the in the back room there. So you need to make sure that that is all all taken care of, and then I think that's it for right now. Um, anybody think of anything else? I'm not missing anything. <laughs> that's not for two weeks. Oh, this weekend. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that everybody's ready to study the word this evening, make sure you're in fellowship, and uh, then we will. I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we are indeed very thankful, grateful that we can be here this evening, that we can be here to study your word, to be encouraged, strengthened by a study of your word, and be challenged by it. Father, we pray for, we continue to pray for Margaret, we pray for her health, pray that the doctors there will have wisdom in balancing her medication and whatever is needed to solve the heart problems. Also, ongoing uh, problems with interpreting the visa law in Ukraine. We pray that that can be resolved, especially for Jim Dumas, as well as uh, uh, the Myers and their their return, is, and also safe travel and an effective ministry as they travel this summer uh, back here in the U.S. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand the things we study this evening as we uh, continue to focus on the uh, future, focus on uh, eternity future and the new heavens, the new earth, and the future for a uh, future in heaven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Tonight we're in Revelation 21, verse 9, and we're going to look at the New Jerusalem. Now, in the new heavens and the new earth, as we will discover as we get down into uh, the uh, next chapter, is that there's no curse anymore. It is perfect environment in the new heavens and the new earth, unlike today. Today we have all kinds of problems living in our uh, fallen world, dealing with all kinds of issues, one of which that is uh, a current event that is a challenge to um, a lot of people, politicians, government, and at least one state right now, and that's the whole issue of immigration. Last week, I didn't get a chance to talk about this, but I wanted to give you this update. Last week, I uh, met with a group of pastors. There's an organization here that I've been involved with for about I don't know about four years, called the Houston Area Pastors Council, which is a local group that's part of a larger group called the Texas Area Pastors Council or Texas Pastors Council, and then that's part of the U.S. Uh, PC. And they've done a number of really good things. Uh, often when you open your morning newspaper, you'll read that such and such a ministerial group uh, got together and they, they made some statement. You look at that and go, who are these guys? I don't know any pastors who believe that. And and where are the guys, the pastors, who believe what I believe? And that's that's this group. And for several years they have, uh, it's a multi-denominational, uh, multi-ethnic group, uh, crosses all, they have all ethnic groups represented, and they have been involved in a number of things. The one that stands out most in my mind right now is one that occurred a little over two years ago, in, um, down in Pearland, there was a middle school principal who uh, set up an assembly in the, in the middle school where they had a representative of CARE come in. CARE is the, uh, is the um, uh, American Islam Relations Committee. And, um, and, they're very, uh, and they've been uh, suspected of, of uh, funneling money to radical groups and things of that nature, and they're just, they're, they're just off the charts and unbelievable as far as I'm concerned, and, and they do not represent anything healthy that should be in any school. And so um, as soon as word of that got out, um, I think that happened the day before I left on my taking my last group to Israel, so I had no involvement. But I was pleased by the time I got to Israel and looked at, got on the Internet and looked at the news that Dave Welch, who is the head of the organization here in Houston, had met with the uh, Superintendent of the school system down in I think it was, it was either it was friend, down in Friendswood, and that the that uh, 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 that principal was on suspension, and then she basically was given an office uh, closet in a building somewhere and not allowed to be back in that school. And they dealt with things very rapidly, and this group's done really good things over the years. And so uh, I had been uh, I sent out a couple of emails to him. A while back, because I'm sort of getting a little tired of hearing from people I would not suspect this of, of making, taking positions on immigration reform that are either too, too narrow in terms of they're not focused on the whole problem, or they are uh, too focused on, uh, on just uh, 
on just, oh, well, just just give amnesty to everybody. Where's the justice in that? And my question here, the thing that came to my mind, is we all recognize as, as Christians and conservative Bible-believing Christians ought to recognize that there is always a, you have to balance mercy and justice. You can't, justice without grace can be, it can become tyranny. Grace without justice is just antinomianism. It's just permissiveness. And there's no, no absolute. And so there has to be a balance between justice and mercy or grace, just as there was at the cross. The justice of God is satisfied in relation to sin by the fact that Jesus Christ pays the sin penalty. Justice is satisfied, and then God's grace is free to, free to flow. So, the group put together a policy that if you can go out on the Internet, it's called uh, immigration. Is it immigrationdocument.org? I think that's it, immigration or uh, uh, document.org. I'm going to send out an email with the link and some explanation on this. But their goal, they, they just put this website up 10 days ago, and their goal is to get a, a minimum of 1,000 pastors and as many other people as they can to support Support it, and then on the basis of that strength, they have leverage to go to speak to uh, politicians and to say, "Look, we're coming. We've got a thousand pastors behind us, and we want to talk about what what's going on." Now, what's good about this their position? It may not be as strong as some people would like it to be, but it's not wimpy, and it addresses three facets of the problem, which most groups only address one. The first and foremost is border security and that we have to close the borders. It's not just a matter of uh, the fact that you've got some, uh, you know, some lower-level misdemeanor criminal elements coming across or just you don't want people coming in so that they can get a better job. It's because there's a, not only a huge criminal element coming across, but in the last six weeks there have been at least three or four different reports that have detailed how Hezbollah is sending terrorists across our southern border. And so this is extremely dangerous for, for this nation. And the level of criminality that is going on on our border now is beyond anything anybody in this congregation has ever seen or experienced in reality unless you have been in the heart of battles in, in, in Iraq where you have seen the most horrible, terrible things take place. And... Um, uh, some of the things that these drug lords are doing uh, to innocent people on our border, on the Mexican side of the border, uh, in order to terrorize the population are beyond yours and mine imagination. And it doesn't take much for them to come across and get in. And the problem won't be on the border. It won't be just at Laredo and Del Rio and, and Brownsville and McAllen. That problem is going to be uh, exacerbated and really explode in Houston and Chicago and New York and Philadelphia and places like that because that's where a lot of the a lot of the uh, crim extreme criminal element ultimately goes. And so there has to be border security. And once you secure the borders, then there has to be immigration reform. And I'm going to send out a link when I send out this email that will link you to when we had our press conference last Wednesday, uh, Fox 26 was the only channel that did a really decent report on it, and they had a good video, and there were uh, five different pastors that spoke, four of whom were, uh, three of whom were Hispanic, one was Japanese-American uh, married to a uh, Hispanic Mexican woman. And they spoke, and what I learned, which I didn't realize, was three of the Hispanic pastors 
coming from different countries and um, di- different Latin American countries, all talked about how the just the the visa process is completely broken. There is no set procedure to get a visa to come to the U.S. If you want to come up here, you're a law-abiding citizen, and you want to come up here on vacation, nobody in any embassy can tell you how to do it. I mean, they just told story after story about how the whole system is just absolutely broken down. And so that has to be addressed. And then the third thing that has to be addressed is a way to deal uh, with those who are already here in a way that balances justice and compassion. Now, they're not writing a legislative policy. They are expressing a general position that needs to be uh, that, that needs to set the boundaries within which legislation needs to work. You can't be good, kind, and compassionate to people who are already here at the expense of the law. You can't run around and act like the law is not doesn't really exist. You can't just ignore law. We have to uphold the rule of law. But at the other hand, we don't have to enforce the rule of law at the expense of legitimate uh, compassion towards uh, certain elements. That's where the rubber is going to meet the road. But the key element, and what I like about this policy, is it addresses all three of those. Nobody else that I've seen, no other approaches, address those three issues, and nobody seems to be really focusing on border security uh, with their other with their other positions. And so, uh, of course, there were only about uh, there was only two news stories that came out after our press conference, which is which is typical. But um, we need to uh, be involved in, in pressing this because on both sides of the aisle, people have just ignored it, hoping it will go away rather than tackle the really tough things that need to be tackled. And so I just thought I would give you a little update on that because at least one person here, uh, when I walked into church last Thursday night, said, I saw you on the news last night. Yeah, right, Dick? So uh, I thought I would let you all know what that that was about. And... Um, uh, uh, and it's getting some exposure at a broader broader level of uh, and the sad thing is I think that some people that I would some conservative leaders uh, that I have uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention and others that I would have thought would have had a different position have just folded uh, and so we need to uh, there needs to be a, a solid correction on all of that oh well that's it for current events let's go to uh, future events uh, Revelation 21. Uh, verse 9, which is going to describe the new heavens and the new earth. question that I've often asked is, what's heaven like? I don't know. The Bible really doesn't tell us what heaven is like. Very little is given in Scripture of heaven. There's three heavens we know is described in the Scripture. The first heaven is the atmosphere around the earth. The second heaven has to do with the uh, the uh, universe, the solar system, the, where all of the stars and galaxies are. And then the third heaven is the throne of God. And we only have a couple of places in the Scripture that give us a glimpse into the throne of God, Isaiah 6, Revelation 4 and 5. And that's it. All the other events really take place upon the earth. In fact, you may not realize it, but when you die and you go to, we're face to face with the Lord and we go through the judgment seat of Christ and we're in heaven for a period of time before we return to the earth with the Lord at the end of the uh, tribulation period, you're not going to spend eternity in heaven. You're going to spend eternity on the earth in the New Jerusalem. 
And that is what's described. The only place in the Bible that this is described is here in Revelation 21, 9 down through 22, 5. And that's it. And I believe that the reason that we're told so little is because we couldn't even come close to comprehending it. It's so far beyond our our ability to comprehend, understand, and relate to what eternity is going to be like in an unfallen state uh, with the presence of the, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father on the earth, and, and all of that is described here, that we, it, it goes beyond anything that we could even uh, comprehend in words. And what we see in the few passages that talk about are a lot of comparisons. This is like that, it's as that, but we don't see any real uh, substantive detail. I'll tell you one thing, though. We can be absolutely sure of we're not going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp. That's that's not going to happen. Remember, when God created Adam initially, he put him on the earth not to do nothing, but he gave him tasks. He gave him, he assigned responsibilities to him as part of the first divine institution of individual responsibility. It wasn't toilsome because sin had not occurred yet. That was the penalty for sin was that man would eat by the sweat of his brow. So all of a sudden, labor, which was pleasurable, enjoyable, the fulfillment of God-given responsibility, uh, that, that labor became toil with the fall. But labor is there. So when we get into the eternal state, there are going to be responsibilities. There's going to be things to do. But we have, I, I have no idea what it is. We, there's, there's no correlation there. We have no, uh, nothing that, to give us insight into that. It is, the Word of God is just silent on that. But it is not silent about the place where we're going to be, and that is going to be in the New Jerusalem. Now, in chapter 21, verse 9, we begin with a fuller description of the New Jerusalem that is uh, initially introduced back in Revelation uh, chapter 21, verse 2. Now, before we get into that, though, um, what we'll see is that there's some discussion among dispensationalists, among uh, Bible prophecy scholars, as to whether these events in 21.9 to 22.5 describe the new heavens and the new earth in the future, or do they go back and give us another look at the uh, at the millennial kingdom. One of the reasons they do that is because of some of the things mentioned, especially when we get down into about verse 20, uh, 24. It talks about the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor uh, into it, as if they're, they're not inhabitants. They're these uh, Gentiles who are not inhabitants of the New Jerusalem and these kings, the, or, and it could be Gentiles or nations. We'll talk about that as we go through the text. But what in the world, uh, are, who are they? And so in order to solve that problem, there were people who uh, suggested, including John, John Nelson Darby, who was the first theologian to really synthesize and systematize a dispensational theology, and Arno C. Gabelein, who was a well-known uh, contemporary of Lewis Berry Chafer and um, uh, C.I. Schofield and others in that era at the turn of the century, and he lived until the uh, late 30s. But um, they were uh, very... Um, uh, uh, both of them, as well as a number of others, believe that this is a rehash or, or a revisit and a redescription of the Millennial Kingdom. But there are several reasons why it cannot be the Millennial Kingdom. 
The first is because in Revelation 20, uh, 21, 4, it talks about the fact that there's no longer any death, crying, or pain. And in verse uh, in 21, 1, all things have been made new. Um, when we get down, that there's no longer any sea. That is mentioned both in 21, uh, 1 as well as uh, later on in the text. There's no longer a need for the sun and the moon. No sun and no moon in 21, 23. There's no longer any night in 21.25, no longer any night or darkness. Why? Because the presence of God and his glory will illuminate everything 24.7. There was no longer going to be anything unclean, nor those practicing abomination and lying. That's in 22.1. So that's not characteristic of the millennial kingdom, where there are those who will be born during that, the, the kingdom and those who at the end of the millennium at the end of the Messianic rule, will uh, follow Satan in a revolt against God. Uh, there, uh, 22.3 says that there will no long, there's no longer any curse. Uh, so the curse of Genesis 3 is finished. It is completely removed. Uh, there's no longer any sun in 22.5 uh, again. And then believers are able to see the Father's face face to face. So there's remarkable differences between what is described in 21, 9 through 22, 5 and what will take place during the, uh, during the millennial kingdom. Now, as we look at this, this chapter that, uh, in chapter 21 introduces the new heavens and the new earth starting back in verse 1. Now I saw uh, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, some people even suggest that that doesn't really mean that they were destroyed. It just means that we're moving from one phase to another phase. However, when we look at these differences I've just listed, where there's no longer a sun, no longer a moon, uh, no longer a salt sea or ocean, then then we know that, that this is a new earth. It is brand new. It is not... Um, um, and especially in conjunction with Second Peter chapter three, it is it is burned up, uh, and a new heavens and a new earth is is put in place. Now, before we go any further, I want to talk about that a minute. He sees a new heaven and a new earth. Now, when you think about heaven, I want you to picture the heavens. You, you gen- go back to Genesis one one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What is the picture in your mind? When you think of when God created the heavens, what did they look like in Genesis 1-1? If you have stars there, you're wrong. You don't have a picture of the new, of, of heaven in Genesis 1-1. Because stars aren't created until the fourth day. So there's no stars. So the heavens doesn't mean the starry skies. It means an empty space. I remember when I was in uh, uh, junior high, I'm not the science guy. I'm the liberal arts guy. And every every year we had to do a science project. What in the world are you going to do for a science project? So a friend of mine down the street had uh, one of us, my family or his family, had gotten a brand-new refrigerator or freezer, and we had that box. Oh, we can do something with this box. So we painted the inside of the box black, and then we put a styrofoam ball up in the corner, and that was the sun, and we... Uh, hung all of the planets and the asteroids and everything else and used toothpicks with the little bitty styrofoam balls to do the, all the moons for all the, all, all the planets. But when we started, all we had was a space. We had a box that defined the finite universe, 
and it was painted black on the inside. That's what God created on the first day. He created space. He created the finite space within which the universe would go, and he created the earth. That's it. No stars, no planets, no moon. None of that's created yet. Just two things, space and the earth. Now, when we get to the end, what are we going to have? We're not going to have a sun. We're not going to have a moon. It doesn't mention stars, but I would suggest that that means we're not going to have stars either. Once again, the universe becomes just that empty black box, just an empty box in the earth. That's why I believe that Genesis 1-1 describes the first universe where you have the heavens, no stars, no planets, no moons, no sun, nothing. You just have the... You just have the universe itself, and in the universe, there's the earth. And the earth, this is the pristine earth that is different, and this was the abode of God and the abode of the angels, and it's described in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 14 and following, which deals with the fall of Satan uh, as he is typified by the king of Tyre in that particular passage. And it's a different kind of earth. And then when Satan fell, when Lucifer, the uh, cherub, uh, who covered the anointed cherub who covered when he fell into sin and God judged the planet, then then you read in Genesis 1-2, and the earth became without form and void, and there was darkness. didn't have darkness before. Well, how is it illuminated? It's illuminated by the glory of God just as it is at the end. I didn't say that, but I think we can extrapolate back from the from the end to the beginning because if this is the abode of God, as it will be at the end, then his glory illuminated everything. And so you didn't have darkness. Darkness comes as a result of sin and judgment, and it's 24-7 darkness. Darkness is on the face of the what? The deep. What's the deep? It's the salt sea. Well, you're not going to have a, now you've got a salt sea as a result of sin. You're not going to have a salt sea at the end. So you have a parallel between the very, very beginning before Gen- in, in terms of uh, the original creation, no, no darkness, no salt sea, and everything's light, everything is perfect, and that's what it's going to be at the end. But in between from Genesis 1-2 until uh, the end of, of Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, what you have is a fallen uh, world that uh, actually becomes fallen after Genesis 3, but it's still impacted to some degree by sin because when God begins to create in the first day, what does he do? He separates the darkness from the light. Before that, there's all darkness. He separates the darkness from the light, and you still have that residual of that initial judgment every night. When it's nightfall, it's darkness. And darkness, typically in Scripture, it's real, but it also is symbolic or it represents uh, the effect, the consequence of sin, and that would go back to the original sin uh, with the angels. And so there's going to be this... There's this uh, uh, parallel between the original creation and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And so John is going to describe this, and starting in verse 9 and following, he gives us the details, but in typical Hebrew style, he gives us an initial summary at the very beginning in Genesis 21, uh, 1 to 8. And in verse 2, he he. Uh, says, then I saw, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, 
adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle that is the dwelling of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And when I taught through that passage, I showed how God in Revelation always refers to God the Father, never refers to other members of the Trinity, never refers to Jesus Christ, never refers to the Holy Spirit, always refers to God the Father, the one on the throne. And so it is God the Father who will come and will make his abode on the earth with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So that's the summary back in verses 2 and 3. And then in typical Semitic style, that's followed by the details. You see the same thing in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, you go the seven days of creation, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. And then what does Genesis 2 do after starting Genesis 2, 5? You come back and you look at the details of how God created man and the woman on the sixth day. And so this is typical of how uh, the writers, the Hebrew writers of the Scripture would write. And, of course, John was, was Jewish, and he's influenced by that. Now, in verse 9, uh, we read, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, when he, when this angel comes, he is speaking. The description here in uh, verses 9 and 10 is very similar to uh, what was said in about the seventh, uh, about one of the angels coming to John, uh, one of the seven angels coming to reveal the last series of, of bold judgments. And so he's commanded to come just as he had been commanded to come in Revelation 4.1 when he was called to come uh, to heaven so that God should show, could begin to show him the things to come. And so here he, um, uh, one of these seven angels uh, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues calls him to come, and he is taken to a great and high mountain to be shown the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. As I said, this takes us back and shows us as a reminder of the structure in 17.1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, see how it starts the same way, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on the waters. So he says, Come, I'm going to show you the harlot. And what does John see? John sees Babylon. I didn't put all those verses up here, but that's what comes. John sees the city. Now here... What, what we have in, um, in verse 9, uh, come, I will show you the bride. What does he show? The city. And so there's a parallel there, and the contrast is between Babylon, which is the abode of the demons and the spirits and the center of the rebellion against God, and there's a, a specific contrast here made with the New Jerusalem, which is the holy city of God and will be the abode of the saints, primarily church-age believers, Old Testament saints, uh, will be have their abode in the New Jerusalem. All other believers, Old Testament Gentiles and uh, millennial saints, will have their abode on the earth. But the New Jerusalem will be the, the abode of Old Testament saints. Remember what was uh, Hebrews chapter 11, that uh, Abraham had faith because he looked for a city that with, without foundation. And that's the city he's looking for is the New Jerusalem. So 
Revelation 21.11 begins the description. So we begin with a description of the uh, new, new Jerusalem. And um, this is the first thing that is said about it. There's about 11 things stated in description of the new Jerusalem, starting with this verse. And the first is that it, 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 it expresses the glory of God. The new Jerusalem has the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now, there are some who think that jasper is sort of a greenish, light green colored stone. Others believe that the word that is used here in the, in, in the Greek could refer to a type of a diamond. But what is clear from the text is that this is a... Uh, a, a, a stone that is clear as crystal that you can see through it. The word is also used uh, earlier in Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, when it describes the throne of God, that around the throne of God it was like a clear jasper stone. So there's these precious stones that are mentioned here. Our light was like a like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and the glory that we see here is the is coming, it is the, the brilliance, the effulgence that comes from the very character of God. That, that in the core of His being, we're told God is light. And so that recognizes, now what you'll often hear is people say, well this is the Shekinah glory. But see, the Shekinah is a, is a Hebrew word, Shekinah means the dwelling. And so when the, in the Old Testament, when they spoke of the Shekinah glory, in the uh, tabernacle in the temple, Shekinah refers to the dwelling presence. So it was the glory of his dwelling. So I find that, that using Shekinah glory is a little bit of, a, of an oxymoron here. It is the glory of God that is so brilliant now and unveiled that it illuminates uh, the, entire, uh, the entire universe. Verse 12 then begins... Uh, the uh, second point of description with uh, by describing the city wall. It doesn't give us any dimensions or anything. And in verse, verses 12 and 13, we read that the city has a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the on the west. Now, we talk about the New Jerusalem. There is the, the and, and some of the uh, similarities that are stated here uh, in this chapter that that are make some people think that it's the Millennial Kingdom, and others who see it as 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 after the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, one of the things that uh, that you've probably heard, I've heard it most of my life, and never really knew where it came from. But having gone through a lot of study on this. Uh, recently, I realized that's because it was speculation. There is no evidence for it. And that is, you've heard that the New Jerusalem was created and sort of hovered like a satellite over the planet during the Millennial Kingdom, and then it's brought down to the earth uh, during the the uh, eternal state in the new heavens and the new earth. And there's no support for that. Uh, that developed because of these men trying to figure out how because some of the things here in Revelation 21 sounded like they ought to fit uh, in the Millennial Kingdom, so they were uh, chronologically challenged, one might say. 
And as a result of that, that was their compromise to try to explain that. But there's no evidence anywhere that the New Jerusalem ever has any abode, uh, anything going on with it, until you get to chapter 21, and it descends from heaven, which would be the heaven of God, not just the uh, starry skies. And so it comes to the earth and and settles on the earth, and it has a, a wall around it, a high wall, which is the dimensions are described later, uh, with 12 gates. And each of these gates have 12 angels. Now, this is a picture of security. Now, there's no enemy anymore because the enemy's been destroyed. Uh, Lucifer and all of the fallen angels and those who have uh, been in rebellion against God are cast into the lake of fire, the second death at the end of chapter 20. So there's no more, <clears throat> there are no more enemies. But the walls, the gates, uh, the angels standing guard there de- uh, depict security that it is very open. And we'll learn that the gates are always open. They never close. And so anyone can come and go, and this would not be true if there was a threat from some sort of foreign enemy. So the picture here is a depiction of of complete uh, security. And the fact that these 12 gates are each identified by the name of one of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel indicates for us that there is going to be the presence of Old Testament Believers, Old Testament saints in the New Jerusalem. It ha- and you don't see this change from Israel to the church. Every time you see the word Israel in the New Testament, it always refers to literal ethnic Israel. It never is used to refer to the church. Literal hermeneutic. Israel means Israel. The church means the church. And you, the Israel never means the church. And the church never means Israel. And so you have... Uh, the, the gates themselves are all identified by the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, what's interesting is we're not really sure uh, which, uh, which names go on which gates. Those are described in other places in the Old Testament. There's a couple of different locations. But there is a passage in Ezekiel 48 which describes the New Jerusalem, and I believe this is probably... Uh, the orientation. So the, in Ezekiel 48, 31 through 34, we read, The gates of the city shall be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates on the north side are named for Reuben, Judah, and Levi. The gates on the east side are named for Joseph. Notice we don't have a split between Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay, the two sons of Joseph. So Joseph stands for those two. Remember, there's really 13 tribes, so you never get the same list in more than two or three different passages, depending on how they were adding people up at the time. So uh, that, that's sort of one of those interesting little conundrums. You've got 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, which 12 are going to be here? So Joseph is here uh, combining uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. So you have uh, Joseph, uh, Benjamin, and Dan on the east. So Dan, you know, there's some people who think that Dan gets excluded because it's a tribe of the Antichrist or something. And I pointed that out when we studied it, that that was just no biblical basis for that whatsoever. Um, and that's because Dan's not mentioned in the passage in Revelation chapter 7, which lists the 12 tribes of Israel, but that's another issue. Uh, verse 33, on the south side, measuring 4,500 cubits, the three gates are Simeon, 
Issachar, and Zebulun, and then on the west side you have Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. So the identification of these names here is probably the the identification with the New Jerusalem, although that applies to the millennial Jerusalem. But it's very likely that's the same order that we'll have in the in the heavenly Jerusalem. So the first, uh, the first item described the glory of God. The second, the security of the city and the way God will protect all of the saints uh, who are present there. And then the third thing we see is the description of the foundations of the wall in Revelation 21, verse 14. Now, the wall of the city had 12 foundations. Now, it's not clear how these 12 foundations work. Are they all on top of each other? Or are there 12, they're related to stones? Are they 12 different huge stones, one of these precious stones that are identified here? How they work, we're not sure. But the 12 foundations are on, written on them are the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. What's the problem there? Who's the 12? Judas wasn't a believer. He got kicked out. Peter came along and said, maybe we'll put, well, let's choose a new one. And they chose Matthias. Then in chapter uh, 8, God came along and chose Paul. So are we going to have Matthias or Paul? We don't know. Then there's discussion about that. And when I start the study on Acts, we'll get into that in Acts chapter 1. So, but God knows who the 12 are, and those 12 names will be on the 12 foundation stones of the, of the New Jerusalem. And so this represents the church. So from this, I, I believe we can say that the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem are going to be the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament believers from Israel, and the believers in the church age uh, the mem- members of the church, th- they will have their habitation there, and that's, at least the church, we know the church is going to be there because at the v- very beginning the city is de- described as the, as the bride of Christ. This is where the bride of Christ, the church, will uh, take up residence. Then in verse 15, in verse 15, John says that... Um, uh, the angel who spoke with him had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. So now we're going to get into a description of the dimensions of this city. The city is laid out as a square. Actually, the word that is there in the Greek indicates a cube. Its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. So it's not just a square. If you've got height in there, it's going to be a cube. And the height are equal. So each is 12,000 furlongs or around 1,400 to 1,500 miles. So this is, this is enormous. If this were placed over the continental United States, it would cover every state in the Union except for uh, Montana, Utah, uh, California, Oregon, and Washington. Uh, everything else would be be covered. That's that's the size, the dimensions of the um, uh, of the New Jerusalem. If if uh, just just from here to New York, from Houston here to New York City, it's fifteen hundred miles approximately, and so that would just be one leg. And so this is an enormous city that is going to come down uh, in the Middle East over the area that God had promised for 
for Israel. So verse 17, he measured its wall 144 cubits. Now that gives us the dimensions of the, of the wall on the outside. And I believe this isn't the height of the wall because when you have a city that's 1500 miles high, having a wall that's only 144 uh, cubits, which is just a little more than, uh, uh, 220 feet or so, that's not a whole lot. Uh, so this describes the, probably the, 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 the depth of the wall, the thickness of the wall is 144 uh, cubits according to the, uh, measure of a man, so that's using human measurements. And the construction of the wall was of jasper again, and we're told that the city was of um, the city was of pure pure gold. I jumped ahead. Let's back up. There we go. The con- um, the construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. We can't even imagine gold like that, but this is a, a you know this is going to be in the in a perfect heaven. So uh, it's going to be uh, uh, pure gold that is clear that one can see through. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, uh, the fifth. Uh, sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth uh, chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Now, before you start running down to the local uh, uh, rock shop trying to find all these things, you, uh, we're, not, we're not really sure what, how the Greek translates into uh, all of these stones. We're fairly sure on, uh, uh, um, on most of them but not on all of them. I want you to notice that there are 12 stones there, and there is a similarity between uh, these stones and the stones that are found in the breastplate of the high priest, but they are not, uh, not identical. There is also a similarity with uh, Ezekiel 28. Now I'm going to hit the next verse quickly before we come back to this, because that's the slide order. The twelve gates are going to have twelve are twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. That must be a really large oyster. A single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Okay, now here's our list of of uh, stones that are found there and the various colors. They tend to be green, blue, uh, red, uh, yellow, various shades uh, in between violet and, pur- and purple with the jacinth and the, and the amethyst. Now, these are similar to what w- was found in Eden, the Garden of God, and the covering that was on uh, Lucifer, who was the anointed cherub who covered uh, we have, uh, but we only have nine, uh, nine of the twelve there. The sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald. It's not the same. Uh, you have turquoise here. But again, we're not exactly sure on the, the meanings of the Hebrew words and the Greek words because they're not used in that much literature. And so it's difficult for us to uh, to, to really be, be confident in, in what some of these uh, stones are that, that are described here. Now, in verse 21, as we go past the description of the, uh, 
uh, of verse 22, rather, as we go past the description of the of the um, of the walls, we come to the sixth thing that's described there, and that has to do with some things that are are not present there. And so we see that in verses 22 to 24, there is uh, not going to be a temple. I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now there have there will be in history four temples in Jerusalem. The first was Solomon's temple. The second, the second temple that had two phases. Phase one was the Zerubbabel temple. Phase two was the uh, renovation under Herod. Second temple was destroyed in AD 70. There will be a third temple built on the Temple Mount. Uh, based on the prophecy in Daniel uh, that when the Antichrist comes, he will bring a cessation to the sacrifices and the temple. So that means that sacrifices, which have stopped now, will have to be restored, and then he will stop them. That means there has to be a temple. If he is going to desecrate the temple, uh, which is what's predicted in Daniel chapter 9, then there has to be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. That means, as bad as this may sound to some people, that the uh, Dome of the Rock will, will go. For whatever reason, in order for that prophecy to be fulfilled that a temple will be rebuilt there, then that means that whatever structure is presently there will be removed, and then this will be rebuilt. How that will occur, we don't know. When that will occur, we don't know. Uh, under what conditions? There could be a war and the... Uh, uh, and as a result of a missile or bombs or something, the uh, Temple Mount could be hit and the present structure completely destroyed. Uh, who knows what will cause that, but it will, uh, for the prophecy to be fulfilled, we know that the temple, the, the present structure has to be rebuilt. That's the third temple. And then there will be a fourth temple, that's uh, uh, Ezekiel's temple, that's described in Ezekiel chapter uh, chapters uh, uh, 40 and following. That is the a huge temple, much larger than much larger dimensions than what we've had in anything, uh, anything in the past. But there's not going to be a temple in the eternal state because God Himself will take up residence with man, and so there won't be any need for a temple, no ritual at all. God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We also learned that there's going to be no sun or moon. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, the Lamb is its light. What did Jesus say? I am the light of the world. This, all, all these passages tie, uh, tie together. Verse 24, And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Now the Greek word for nations is ethnoi where we get the basic root word for ethnic. And eth, ethnoi or ethnos in the singular can describe Gentiles or it can describe nations. So you have a little bit of a hermeneutical issue here. Is this talking about nations or is it talking about Gentiles? Well, so there is an overlap there. It is at the very least talking about Gentiles. And what does that mean? It reminds us that even in the eternal state, there's going to be a distinction between Israel and the Gentiles. It doesn't get erased. 
Now, that's one of the flaws in this uh, new teaching that came out of Dallas Seminary in the last 20 years on progressive dispensationalism is that they say that all those distinctions are eradicated uh, when you get into the future. But this would argue that, that, no, there is a distinction between, still a distinction with the Gentiles. Now, I think in this passage it talks about uh, nations because in the next clause it talks about the kings of the earth. So there will still be national distinctions on into the on, on into eternity, and so the idea of universalism or internationalism, where we break down uh, individual state sovereignty, which is very popular today under all kinds of one world government, one world ideas, is anti-biblical. Remember, the fourth divine institution was the establishment of government in the covenant that God made with Noah. And then after the Tower of Babel fell, God scattered people by means of languages, and that's the foundation for for nations. In Acts, it says the boundaries of the nations are established by God. Nationalism, in, in the sense of national identities and distinctions, were made up and, and established by God as part of his plan uh, for the human race, for re, the restraint of sin and criminality, uh, and in order to make it less easy for the human race to unite against God as it did at the Tower of Babel. So there will be nations. Now, at that time, there's only going to be one language. We're not going to have multiple languages, and all are going to be uh, obedient to God. If, uh, even in the uh, Millennial Kingdom, uh, there are nations on the earth at that time, and all the nations, Isaiah says in Isaiah 2, will come to Jerusalem to worship. So who we see the nations of those who are saved, and I believe that this is the nation. These are the uh, those believers who survive the millennial kingdom, and they get resurrection bodies and go into the eternal state. But their abode is not going to be in the new in the new Jerusalem. So these are the believers who survive the tribulation. Uh, uh, or excuse me, the millennium, the millennial saints, and they get a resurrection body. Uh, somebody somewhere asked me, said, well, uh, is there going to be marriage and procreation on into eternity? And, and that's the silliest thing I've ever heard of. Uh, there's no evidence for that uh, here whatsoever. They get a resurrection body and go on into eternity. Um, Nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it. They will be coming to worship God as a result of that which they produce in the, millenni- in the eternal state. There will still be labor there of some kind, and they will be bringing that as they did in the Old Testament to the temple, uh, bringing the results of their labor to honor God. In, let's see here. Verse 25, its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. So there's no darkness. Darkness is gone. Uh, there's total security. The gates, though there are gates and towers, there's, there's no, uh, there's no need to ever shut the gates. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, into the city. It's a restatement of what the kings do in verse 24. But there shall be by no means, but they, there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
And that is the list of those who are saved. Old Testament, New Testament, that's the list of those who are saved. And those are the only ones who survived the judgment of the great white throne judgment at the end of Revelation uh, chapter 20. And so that, this is a statement that, that there's no longer any sin, which is going to be restated in verse, verse 3, that the curse is gone. And so there's no longer going to be a problem with sin in the new heavens and the new earth. Remember, they didn't have chapter and verse divisions in the original text. And then in verse 1, we read a description of the, began to read a description of the throne room. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. Now, I want you to think about the description here and compare it to the description we have of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. In Eden, there was one river that flowed out of Eden, and then it divided into four. There's no place like that on the earth today. It's a different topography then. Now we have rivers that um, uh, four, three or four rivers will come together and make one larger river, but we don't have one river coming from a single source that then divides into multiple rivers. And here we have a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, so the throne of God is at the center of the New Jerusalem, and out of that proceeds this pure river of water. And it goes down the main boulevard, which is uh, the streets on each side of the river. And on either side of the river, there's the tree of life, which grows. And this is the first mention of the tree of life since Genesis chapter 2 and 3. The tree of life grows, which bore 12 fruits. So you have the tree of life. It's either a single tree or uh, it lines the boulevard, and every month there, there's fruit that's born. And it's unclear in the text whether it's 12 different kinds of fruits, a different kind of fruit each month, or whether it just bears uh, the same fruit every month. But in either case, it shows that you don't have the kind of seasonal divisions that we have today. Everything grows and everything produces and there's no division. But it's clear that there must be uh, some sort of uh, calendar or means of calculating time and our progression because it says that it uh, bears a fruit every month. There's no moon. There's no sun. How they're going to calculate it, I don't know. But it's going to bear uh, every, every month. When we get there, we'll know. Uh, Revelation 22, um, two states in the middle of its street on either side of the river was a tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding the fruit. And then the next thing we learn is that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, most, I get this question all the time. Why do they need to be healed? It's in the new heavens and the new earth. It's bad translation. It ought to be health. It has to do with promoting something positive. It's not countering something negative. Okay? That's healing implies you're sick and you need to be healed. Health is just promoting that which is, uh, which is positive. And again, it's for the health of the nations. And so it's promoting that that is, is positive. So we'll be eating something. We'll be eating fruit, uh, in the, uh, new heavens and the new earth. Sometimes people want to know, uh, are we going to be eating when we're in heaven, and we'll be eating, but you will be, once again, we'll be vegetarians. We won't be eating meat, so you better be eating all of the prime rib uh, and fish or lamb or whatever it is that you like now because when we uh, get into the eternal state, we won't have it. Now, I'm sure God can 
I'll create something that's just as uh, good and uh, identical, and we'll try to figure that out when we get there. But primarily, it's it's going to be back to the same conditions that, that man lived under between the creation of Adam and Noah. It's not until after the flood that man was authorized to eat meat. And then in verses 3 and 4, we read, And there shall be no more curse. The throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So no more sin. The curses roll back. There is no evidence of sin anymore. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their forehead. And that emphasizes an intimacy of fellowship that everyone will have uh, with God. And then in conclusion, verse 5, again restating the uh, the fact that this is stated about three times now makes it clear this is an important issue, that there is no night there. And that, again, reinforces what I've been saying is that darkness and night is evidence of sin and judgment. There shall be no night there, and they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And that brings us to a conclusion of the, prof- the, the prophecy of Revelation, because starting in the next verse, in verse 6, we come to the conclusion to the book of Revelation. So we, we started off, looking at the uh, the prophetic section, uh, that, that the Revelation had three basic sections because Jesus told uh, John, I want you to write the things that are. That is what John initially saw on the Isle of Patmos. The things uh, are the things that were, the things that he saw there on the Isle of Patmos. The things that are, which deals with the present church age, Revelation 2, Revelation 3, and the things that shall be after these things, and that's the future prophetic section, which began in 4.1 and ends here in 22.5. And then starting in uh, verse 6 next time, we come back to uh, concluding matters and the emphasis in the, in the text and the warning that Jesus is coming uh, quickly. That doesn't mean soon. It means when things begin, it will rapidly unfold in the end time events. So we have about uh, three more weeks or three or four more lessons in uh, Revelation, and then we will come to an end, and then we will start on Tuesday night. We'll start a study in either Acts, Colossians, or Romans. I haven't decided which one yet, but one of those three. Uh, Hebrews will finish probably by Labor Day. Kings will finish in early September, and so those will be the, the next three studies. So I've never had three major shifts, book shift, quite that much at the same time. So... It's been a while for those of you who've hung in here. We have um, accomplished a great deal in this study. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to ending myself and getting on to something different, as I'm sure some of you are as well. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to get a, just an indication of what uh, the future in eternity uh, has for us in the new heavens and the new earth. And, Father, we recognize that in that your justice, your righteousness will have been satisfied, been on display, and your, your mercy and your grace will also have been on display. Father, we thank you for the fact that we've been uh, through this study and all that we've learned, and we pray that as we wrap it up that the application of it to present time will be uh, made clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.